It's good to see all of you. It's good to be together. Um, I recently got back from uh, Young Life Camp at Lake Champion this week. And then uh, tonight, our wildlife kids get back from wildlife camp. So a lot of exciting things happening. And um, all of which Missio Day Church is a part of and supports. So um, I know I'm grateful and many kids are as well. So thank you for making those things possible. Um, I, uh, my wife and my family moved out here about seven years ago from California because, let's be honest, 75 degrees every day gets really boring. So, um, but uh, sometimes when people hear that I'm from California or we moved from California, they'll ask, hey, did you see any famous people? And we saw a few, um, and I'd, I'd like to share some of them with you right now. Uh, one time when I was on my way to a Young Life training, I got lost, and we're kind of going up this windy road. And so I pull over, and um, I ask a guy who was walking a dog for directions. It turned out to be Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future, which is pretty cool. And so we hopped in his DeLorean, and then he took me where I needed to go. Um, that, that part wasn't true. But um, uh, I saw Jeff Bridges a few times. Um, a buddy of mine worked at the smoothie place where Jeff Bridges would come every morning. Really, really cool dude. He uh, was always rocking a t-shirt, board shorts, glasses, had his paper. You could quote the Big Lebowski, uh, Big Lebowski lines to him, and he was totally cool with it. Um, I also met uh, Katie Holmes. Uh, I had a crush on Katie Holmes, and I saw her leaving Borders. Borders, uh, for those of you who don't, Borders was a bookstore um, that you would go into and buy a book and not just get it online. But um, she was coming out of Borders, where I just was, so we had a lot in common. Um, but, uh, Katie and I locked eyes for, I want to say at least six or seven seconds, but I felt like it was a moment. Um, I felt like sparks flew. Um, it's not clear as to whether Katie felt the same way. The jury's still out on that, but, um, I did get a chance to have that moment with Katie. Um, when I was a kid, I was really into, um, pro wrestling, like WWF, like Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior stuff. And I got to meet the macho man, Randy Savage. If you don't know who that is, that means you weren't a loser like I was not uh, as a kid. Um, but um, my mom was working for this hospital, and uh, they were doing this fundraiser deal, and the macho man came by, and he was going to sign autographs and whatnot. And so we're waiting for the macho man to arrive in this gym, and uh, there were some basketballs there, and so we were just kind of shooting hoops and waiting for the macho man to come in. And the macho man comes in, and he signs autographs and stuff like that. And, you know, oh, yeah, you know, he's you know, shaking his hand and stuff like that. I asked him if, if wrestling was real. He said it was, and I believe him. Um, and so, uh, and then as he uh, was leaving the gym to go to the next thing, he grabbed the basketball and shot a jump shot, and he missed it. And it was the same place that I had just shot, like the exact same place on the court that I had shot earlier, and I missed the same shot. And it sounds super trivial and weird, but in that moment for me, I was like, wow, the macho man Randy Savage is just like me. He's human. Um, and uh, he's, just, he, he's just like me, also, but also not like me in many ways. Um, but I share this because I think what we can do with celebrities, uh, we can do with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is kind of a celebrity or a famous person, if you will, in the early Jesus movement, and yet just like seeing a celebrity in real life, one of my hopes this morning uh, is that we can begin to see Paul as someone like us, facing similar feelings and struggles that we too might possess. So our, our text this morning is Acts twenty five twenty three uh, through twenty six thirty two. So Acts chapter twenty five, 
uh, verse 20 through, through chapter 26, verse 32. So the, the backdrop to this text is that Festus, who had succeeded Felix, was left with this situation with Paul and what exactly he was supposed to do with him or going to do with him. The Jewish leaders pled with him to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, tells us that they were planning to ambush and kill Paul on the way to Jerusalem. So Festus then consults King Agrippa um, on, uh, for guidance on this matter. So King Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa II. He was the eighth and final ruler from the Herodian dynasty. Uh, so there's uh, King Agrippa and Agrippa's wife, Bernice, who also happens to be his sister. Uh, so they got the whole kind of West Virginia incest thing going on there. Um, if there's anybody from West Virginia, I apologize. Um, so these two come on the scene with great pomp and circumstance and find themselves in front of Paul as he begins his defense. And we're going to pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 26. Here's the word of the Lord. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Because you are especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that I have belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that, um, and that, that this is what I did in Jerusalem with authority received from the chief priests. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. And then Paul goes on to describe his, the, the Damascus Road experience. And I'm going to skip down to verse 19. He said, After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help from God, and so I stand here, testifying to both small and great, sayings, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So there are two things that I'm hoping we can pull out from this text this morning. The, the first is what I alluded to earlier, na- namely that it would be a mistake for us to assume that this constant routine of defending himself and the gospel was easy and came naturally for Paul. I actually think that these continued defenses by Paul began to weigh on him emotionally. We can tend to place Paul in a completely different stratosphere 
from ourselves, and for good reason, right? He's one of the heroes of the early church. But by putting him on this pedestal, we can think that perhaps he didn't struggle with things like fear, doubt, anger, tiredness, and frustration. If one were to trace Paul's leadership throughout the book of Acts, there are a a couple common themes that that could be pulled out. One would be Paul defending himself and the gospel, and the other would be Paul trying to put out fires and disputes amongst the different groups of people that make up this overarching term called the followers of the way. In, In many ways, Paul is kind of like the head of HR for the early church, right? Saying things like, no, that's not what we're about. Uh, We're about this. No, you can't do that. We're going to do this. No, these people don't need to be circumcised. No, this movement is not just for these people. It's for all people. He's constantly correcting and defending. So Paul is to the early church what Toby Flenderson is to Dunder Mifflin. Except I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Paul probably didn't have that boring monotone voice that Toby had. So I share all this background to highlight the fact that I don't think it's unreasonable for us to assume that Paul probably struggled with frustration and fatigue from constantly having to defend himself and the gospel message. That had to be a weighing reality for him to again and again stand before another group of people to mount yet again another defense that had to, be, that had to get tiring, overwhelming, and frustrating for Paul. And the reason why I believe that this is significant is because my guess is that as followers of Jesus, we all have experienced similar feelings. Yes, it's true. None of us are the Apostle Paul, nor are we necessarily called to be just like the Apostle Paul. But we've all had moments of perhaps being tired and frustrated from feeling like you have, you have to kind of defend your faith, so to speak. In the culture in which we find ourselves, and I would say in the geographical region of the country that we live in, I think we can all resonate with the feeling of being tired of defending what you believe and who you believe in. Thoughts of like, man, once they find out I follow Jesus, what will they think of me? What ridiculous claim or situation will I have to deflect as not genuinely Christian? And what will I have to defend as true and life-giving for the faith? Perhaps you're a bit hesitant at work that your coworkers to uh, were, uh, that your coworkers would uncover that you're one of those Jesus people, because then you'll be flooded with questions, or perhaps you'll feel the need to defend yourself and your own faith from something that some so-called Christian idiot said on TV. Now I, I know I'm not from here. I know that I'm from away, but by the way, Jesus was from away. So in your face, um, but I, I I don't think it's it's way off base to say that um, this is a real feeling and sentiment amongst folks in our community who follow Jesus. For the last seven years, um, working with high school, middle school kids here um, in the community, uh, they've often shared, uh, kids who are, are following Jesus or just began a relationship with Jesus, they often share about this sort of like uh, uh, fear that they have at school of, of telling their friends that they follow Jesus because of all the questions that might come or the judgment that might come or their, you know, history teacher that might rattle them off with a bunch of questions. Um, and they're like, this is, this, is, this is who I am. And yet I feel like I can't really tell everyone because I'm afraid of what they might think. And, and uh, so I just, it's, it's, it's kind of this weird thing. And I've heard that time and time again. And it's a lonely and isolating feeling. And it's a tiring feeling. 
that you just, like, this is who I am as a follower of Jesus, and I can't, I really can't be my full self in this context. And I've talked to a lot of people who have grown up here in Maine who've expressed that same sentiment. My wife, Emily, is a teacher, and, and she's shared before that it's, she's a little, you know, hesitant that her other co-workers find out that she's follows Jesus, because what would they think, or would she lose her job, or would all these questions come up, or would they assume all these things politically about her, all of those things. Um, we just started wildlife, as you know, this year, and so um, uh, my daughter Kayla has been with the same group of kids since um, kindergarten in, in the Spanish immersion program, so we've gotten to know the, these parents, and, uh, and so I began now that we started wildlife, I've sort of began uh, talking with these parents and um, inviting them to bring their kids to, to wildlife. And I remember the first day I started that, I was so freaked out because it's like, surprise, I'm the Jesus guy too, you know, but I'm a cool guy, you know. So, and so it's like, uh, I just remember, like, what are they going to think? Uh, are they not going to want to have their kids hang out with Kayla anymore because I'm inviting them to this weird, like, cult thing? Like, and so, but that was, it was a deep thing that I, I, I think is, is, is a little unique to where we live. We've all had these feelings, and they can become tiring and frustrating because maybe they're constant feelings. Well, I think the good news is that I believe Paul would resonate with each one of us. But perhaps what's even better news is that most people in this room this morning would resonate with you as well. These feelings are real. But they are not meant to drive us into fear and and isolation. We are all in this together. As a community and together, we can share in this burden so that we can do what the Lord has called us to do. The second thing that um, I want us to see is that in the midst of all of those feelings, Paul not only continued to live out his calling, but he counted it a privilege to do so. Look at verse 2 of chapter 26. Paul says that he considers himself fortunate to be the one to provide a defense of the gospel in front of King Agrippa. When was the last time that you considered yourself fortunate for being able to share the good news of Jesus with someone? When was the last time that it felt like an absolute gift Paul would have had every right to say, you know what, I'm done giving all these defenses. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever you, you, you want to me. I'm done. Okay? He could have even said, hey, King Agrippa, get Agrippa. Right? I've been wanting to say that for a while. Sorry. And honestly, if Paul did that, we would all read that. And taking into account all that Paul had done up to that point, we would say, hey, that's, that's completely understandable. And even if he did do that, I think Paul would still be considered a hero of the early church. But the feelings of fatigue or frustration from constantly having, ha- having to defend the gospel probably hadn't gone away for Paul. And yet in the midst of them, he says, I consider myself so fortunate to be the one called to share in this moment at such a time as this. There's no indication that Paul waited until he felt like he was in a better place. At his very core... He believed that the power of his own calling, given to him by Jesus himself, by the way, was more powerful and superseded his own feelings and desires. And one might say, well, that's because Paul had a stronger faith than I do. 
He doesn't suffer. He doesn't suffer from doubt like I do. Well, I would disagree. Not because I think we are like Paul, but because I think that the biggest competitor to faith is not doubt. It's fear. Fear is what keeps us from engaging with people. Fear is what keeps us from realizing that being able to share the good news of Jesus is actually a privilege and a gift and not a burden that we need to complain about or run away from. Sometimes when I think about the, the job that I've been called to in young life, I think it is an absolute impossible task. It's impossible. I'll walk onto a high school campus and see a sea of kids and I'll be like, there's no way. There is no way. I am 38 years old. They want nothing to do with me. And I want to talk to them about Jesus. There's no way. It's an impossible task. And yet simultaneously, I think, what a gift and a privilege that I am the one that Jesus has chosen to be a part of this impossible task. It's simultaneously, I can, I can see this as a privilege to be able to do this. I could question the Lord and say, maybe you've got the wrong person. There's no way that this is going to happen. Or I could respond like Paul and say, I consider myself fortunate. We are to be a people who live into the calling of lifting up Jesus. We are not called to lift up Jesus like Paul did, necessarily, but we are called to lift up Jesus. We are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus even when we are at the end of ourselves, tired and exhausted. Just like Jesus, after he sends out the 12, and they come back, and they're undoubtedly exhausted, and a crowd approaches, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Or after fishing all night, Jesus gets in the boat of Simon and says, push out into deep water. And Simon says, we've been working all night, Lord. But because you ask, I'll do it. This is the cruciform life. This is denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Even in the sharing of the good news, we must model the one who is at the center of that good news by dying to ourselves and rising to new life. There's two things that that, that I think that make Paul's defense powerful and effective. And the first is this. Paul's credibility. You remember what he says? He says, you have known me from my youth. I have lived with you. I've lived among you. You know who I am. I was a part, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? I I was the strictest of Pharisees. You know me. You know my life. You have seen me. We need to be people who relationally invest in people so that when the moment comes to share about Jesus, there's a level of credibility and trust to what we say. So that when we share Jesus, we can say, you know me. You know my life. Or you know how I used to be. You know what I filled my life with. And now my life is in a completely different direction. Paul had incredible credibility. And that is a process and not a single moment credibility, by the way. It takes time and time and time. The second thing that I think that makes it 
makes Paul's defense powerful and effective is that Paul was not trying to convert Jews into Christians. Those are labels that other people outside the followers of the way superimposed upon the group. It's a term that we use often. This idea, uh, a framework, um, was not present for Paul. Paul is, is a Jew. He is a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like I just said. So these labels were put on after the fact by others, not by Paul or other Jesus followers. Paul is not trying to convert Jews into Christians. He's trying to say that what you have longed for, what we have longed for as a people, what you've been waiting for has been found in this Messiah Jesus. And the resurrection that we've been longing for at the end of time was brought forth into the present through one person, Jesus the Messiah. It has come. It is here. That's what he's saying. Friends, I have very little interest in converting people to Christianity. Very little interest. But I do have a great passion for people who are desperately longing for life to come to the reality that Jesus Christ is life. That's so much more powerful. That's all-encompassing. That's not just a, a checklist of things to believe. It's a whole new reality, a whole new way of being human. And that's what Paul was trying to do. He wasn't trying to say, hey, ditch this religion and pick up a new one. He was saying, no, no, no. All that you have longed for, all that we have longed for as the people that we've waited for, it's come. It's here. So we need to see the sharing of the good news as not a a conversion to some religious system, but just like Paul was trying to do, an invitation to see your longings finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Maybe you know someone who is gripped by depression, anxiety, worry. The good news is that Jesus is the light of the world. That he can bring light into the darkness. That the darkness is as light to him because he is the light of the world. Maybe you know of a marriage that's on the brink that could maybe last a couple more weeks. The good news is that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That wholeness and restoration is possible because of the Messiah Jesus. Maybe you know of someone who is so invested in their career and success that it's damaging their relationships with their kids and their family. And the good news is that what you are looking for in your career will always leave you empty. But if you drink the living water of Jesus, you will never be thirsty again. We all know people who are longing for life. They're not longing for religion. They're not longing to be told that they're wrong. But they have these deep longings. And these lists can go on and on. But the reality is that the deepest longings of your soul can find their yes in Jesus. That's good news for all people. For all people. Friends, this is what we are called to do even when it costs us the most. And it's not something we're meant to do alone. That's what we're here together for. 
we are here to believe for one another when we can't believe. We are here to carry the burdens for one another when we can't carry them ourselves. But we know people who are in desperate need for life. And maybe some people that are in desperate need for life that have no idea that they're desperate. And we're called to lift up the person of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said that the gospel is like a caged lion. You don't need to defend it. You just need to let it loose. And so, friends, my encouragement to us is that we would be a people who consider this sharing of the gospel as a gift and not a burden. So that through our very lives, the good news of Jesus might be let loose in Portland and in our surrounding communities. Because the Messiah has risen. Death is defeated. And new creation has begun. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for your servant Paul. For his faithfulness and determination to continue to lift you up as Messiah. And we know that your servant Paul was was undoubtedly tired and frustrated from constantly having to give a defense of this good news. But yet, even in the midst of all that, he continued to count it a privilege to lift up the name of Jesus, to lift up the reality that Jesus is Lord. Lord, you love us whether we tell people about you or we don't tell people about you. You you love us the same, but... Lord, you have called us to be salt and light wherever we find ourselves. And I know that in this room, we know people who are desperately longing for life. Who desperately want to know that, there's, that, there's, that, that hope is possible. And Lord, hope is possible because you have defeated death. It has no more power. Even though it feels like it does, it has no more power. It has lost its sting because of the resurrected Christ. So Lord, we, we, we confess that we're, we're, we're afraid. We're, we're, we're scared of what people might think. We're scared of what to say. We're scared of saying the wrong thing. Lord, I pray that you give us great courage and that we would just share our story and the good news of you, of who you are and let the Holy Spirit do its, uh, do its job because it's not up to us to save people. You've already done the work. We just point them to the reality. Give us great courage, Lord. Give us the courage to be willing to fail, to be willing to fall flat on our face, for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom because it's so worth it. Because the people that we know that we love and that we care for that, that, that don't know you, we, we, we don't want them to live another day without hope. We want them to know that they belong to you. And Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your guidance. But it's a gift to be able to share who you are. What a gift. 
Thank you for your forgiveness to us when we consider it a, a burden or, 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 or too much, Lord. It, it's a gift. Thank you that we are fortunate enough to be the ones to share the good news of Jesus in this time, for such a time as this. May your kingdom come and your will be done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to move into our time of communion now. Um, Betsy and Doug will be coming around with the elements. Thank you, Jordan, for the reminder that um, though we come here tired and frustrated, uh, Jesus has and provides the joy and the hope to carry on um, and to boldly proclaim. And one of the reasons we do communion every week at Missio Day is for that reminder. Um, when we come tired and weary, God says, you know, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we come to reorient ourselves. Uh, maybe you've had a tired and frustrating week. Maybe you've flat out blown it when you were in front of people. Um, but Jesus is there to forgive you, to say, okay, go try again. So we look at the bread and we look at the grape juice and we remember the price that was paid for us. We remember that we can find rest, we can find hope, we can find salvation in the Lord Jesus. So you'll uh, find the little wafer under a thin cellophane thing uh, at the top and then the grape juice underneath that. Just ask that you um, take out the wafer and, and wait a second uh, until instructed to partake. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul um, from the book of Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ spilled for you. Take and drink. Praise you, Lord, for the gift of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us, and that through that we have eternal hope, eternal salvation, and that we know that we do not face judgment. Help us to go out and share that good news um, with those around us this week as we head out. Amen.